I can think of a few ways and a few reasons uh, why and how I ended up with low self-esteem as a child. The results of my low self-esteem were being bullied and being extremely arrogant as I got older and ended up on stage and feeling like the only way to get and receive love was to experience it through people and their applause, their laughter, their tears. So becoming a performer was a compensation for me. I was good at it, but as I got older, I realized that I have used it many times in my life to feel love because I didn't feel love as a kid. I didn't feel love and respected by my community, by my school, by teachers. I remember in seventh grade, there was this girl, (laughs) I can say her name. I want to say her name, but I'm sure she's gone through many changes in her life. Anyway, I was totally in love with her and I'm following her down the hall. And as a seventh grade, a 12 year old boy, obviously the only way you know how to express affection for any girl was to insult her. So I was insulting her. And, uh, It reminds me of that old Peanuts cartoon where Linus and Charlie Brown are standing on a bridge and Linus is saying, so I saw that girl and I really, really liked her and I didn't know what to say to her and my palms were sweating and I got so nervous, so I hit her. And that was the experience. I'm walking down the hall, calling her names and stuff. And she turned around and grabbed me by the collar and pushed me up against the doorway to the science room and beat the tar out of me and not open-handed slapping me around full fist to the face. The thing about this is my science teacher was standing literally right next to us while this was happening. And he looked down at me as I was looking up to him to stop this, and he just sneered and went back to watching the kids in the hall. Everybody saw it. And going to class and the kids seeing me, you know, bruised and bloody and the way the story flew around the school. And then from that point on, the boys and the girls both tormented me. Junior high sucked. But see, those are all, that's the downstream results of the primary experience. The older I got and the more blows to self-esteem happened, clarity also came with it. The clarity that I have now of why I had self-esteem is, it's a clinical clarity, but it's clarity nonetheless. My guest is, once again, Skip Lackey. I have met Skip many times in the past, leading and co-leading seminars for adults that are essentially based around self-esteem and getting adults to feel good about themselves so they can do the things that they dream about doing. Skip is a father. And if you attended our last show about dad's divorce and depression, you know that was Skip's process of dealing with that blow to his self-esteem. I've come to learn that underneath self-esteem is a core concept called self-concept. Self-concept is the issue, not self-esteem, but we're going to get there through self-esteem. We're going to get there through self-confidence, and we're going to end up at, at concept. My guest today is Skip Lackey, and the title of today's show is, Do You Love Me Now? Kids, Confidence, Esteem, and Concept. This is Beyond Risk and Back. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Skip, it's great to have you back. I really enjoy our uh, conversations both on the air and off the air. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Aaron. I I just love being in dialogue with you about this. And, you know, you've got such a unique and strong idea of of how to work with the teens and which I, I believe that, you know, as they say, the children are our future. So if we can really help, let's do it. So thanks for having me on the show again. Of course, all these years of working with adults and self-esteem and working with our own self-esteem. And now having children of our own and working with children, what is the biggest thing that lands for you around self-esteem? When you hear someone say, I have low self-esteem or my kids have low self-esteem, what's the first thing that usually shows up for you in talking with that person? When I hear that originally from different parents and different people about that, you know, you and I have a similar background. You were an actor and I spent a number of years in the industry, 25 years as an actor 
on Broadway and in movies, and I was on Nickelodeon as a game show host, blah, blah, blah. I really have to start to think about family of origin patterns and how these patterns of not being good enough and never being able to get the love that you need to connect to others and have a good, healthy attachment, which creates that pain and that suffering, that longing for approval from our significant other, whether it be our parents or a a loved one, an aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister, whatever it is. And I think we can always trace it back to this lack of, hey, in my family of origin, we didn't have a lot of self-esteem. And this is something I personally developed self-esteem at a very young age because like you, you know, you had to, if you were going to survive, you had to. And for me, it came across as building a shield around my ego self, around that self-concept of who I was. And I would just go, you know, screw it. You don't like me. I don't care because I know who I am. And as I got older and really started to settle into understanding where that was being generated from, it was a false sense of self-esteem and self-confidence that was a shell that got built up around my ego. And I worked really hard as an adult, starting in my, probably in my late 20s, to strip away that hardened shell that actually was just a, the core was inside, but it was being, you know, surrounded by this coding, which wasn't real. You know, let's, let's, so let's talk about that for a second. You've brought up, you've brought up an interesting concept and part of self-esteem, feeling unloved, feeling like you don't belong, feeling like, you know, there's not a crew for you, that you're all alone in the world. There's a very primal experience to that, where if we can trace back to being a Neanderthal or being primate humans or primal humans, you don't survive. And that's the word you brought up. You do not survive without a clan, without a tribe. Uh, without, without a clan, a without a tribe. Somebody- right. Watching your back and we're all in it together. That's right, because you have to you have to poop and you have to eat and and while you're doing those things, you can't protect yourself from the saber tooth donkey. You have to sleep. Someone's gotta watch the cave while you're sleeping. And so I think there's a very primal instinct of survival that gets awoken, that wakes up, that comes to bear when we feel unloved or abandoned. And so I guess the question is, when you talk about family of origin, which I know a lot of parents, when they hear this, are like, oh, great, so it's my fault again. But what we're saying is that you got to track back. You got to track back. So is it all about feeling unloved and feeling abandoned? Or is there something else in your mind going on about self-esteem? Well, gosh, this is a multi-pronged question. So let me, let me take a step back, which is, you know, you mentioned something and it's that our reptilian part of our brain, you know, is functioning at a really high level of survival. And so when we are feeling threatened, we're not feeling love, we're not feeling part of that tribe, that clan, you know, our HPA access, our hypothalamus, our pituitary and our adrenals kick in, we go into fight or flight or freeze, right? So all of that's happening. But the thing about it is, We have evolved in modern times to where oftentimes there's no reason to kick into that fight or flight syndrome, but we do anyway because we haven't evolved beyond that. So uh, yes, there are times and places for that when we're under pressure, but our brain still goes there. Our emotions still go there because the amygdala, that little almond-sized gland in the middle of the brain, which runs our emotional center, gets triggered very quickly because of the the lack of evolution that's happened up until this point. So even though we're safe and, you know, we got a roof over our head, we have food in our mouth and all that, we're still feeling that lack of that need for connection. And like you said, yes, does it come back to us as a parent? I mean, I'm a parent and I've got kids and I've got some kids that have high self-esteem and some that are struggling with it a little bit. And I also think it comes down to, you know, I don't want to open up this can of worms too, but it comes down to their personality type and their ego fixation. And I use a methodology called the Enneagram, which is an old, old teaching that's been around for a long time to, to really look at how we, our egos form around our core fixations and our core fears. But when we look at that, you can see that there's, there's very specific 
behaviors. So does all of it come from our family of origin? For some fixations, it doesn't. For some, it doesn't because my specific fixation as it shows up on this Enneagram scale, I have this, screw you. I'm going to do, I'm going to be fine. I can take care of myself, but I also am the one fixation on the Enneagram that just does not feel fear. My fixation doesn't feel fear. So I don't go into that fight or flight mode. So therefore, it makes it a lot easier for me with my ego fixation to actually have that coding around my core to protect myself. So there's there's two so, kinds of there's two there's a double whammy taking place here because you're talking about a lot of neurological things that come up. And there's another one we have to ad address, which is developmental, right? As we get into our right. teen years, but there's also an environmental concept. So we've got the neurological, you know, the, the hippocampus, the, the pituitary, the ecosystem, but then we're also talking about, you could be in an environment that can stimulate your own survival, not feeling safe, or you move to a new school halfway through the year and nobody's your friend, or you play with He-Man dolls and then someone tells you you're weak because you're you're playing sports with friends and, and your legs give out and someone says, your legs are so weak and you're at home playing with He-Man dolls and you get this false concept of what it's supposed to be to be a grown-up or a man or strong or muscular, you know, because the doll's named He-Man. It's kind of a an image of masculinity that you're supposed to, I call it the James Bond, right? You see these movies and women have it. Every, every woman knows exactly what I'm talking about. Men have it too. So we have environmental influences that say you're not good enough and people don't want to hang out with you because you're not good enough. And then there's developmental. There is a phase when someone becomes a teenager, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, where literally they have to separate from the family social system so that they can create self-identity and self-concept. And the only tool they have to do that is I'm going to be me by not being you. That's the only tool that they begin with. To, mm -hmm. They look at their family system and they say, I'm not mom and I'm not dad. For whatever reason, they're not going to be, you weren't like your parents. You ended up a lot like them, but you didn't start out like them. At some point you started to diverge. You took a different path through the woods, but that doesn't leave you with anything to say, I'm going to be me by not being you. And so you're left alone in the wilderness and you're going to go to the fastest, flashiest, images that you get and parents want to they ask me all the time why do my kid like this this rap music or this heavy metal music or this well because those people have power they have money they have resources they have members of the opposite sex that are so of course it's attractive of course you know some kid gets involved in the marijuana culture and suddenly they have a way that they're supposed to dress music they're supposed to listen to and a friend set so it gives you identity oh yeah and so we're we are talking about neurological issues coming up, environmental issues coming up, and developmental issues coming up. So it's actually a triple whammy here. Well, and it is. And, you know, when I approached you about having this conversation for your show, I mentioned to you that there was a, a study that I'd come across a number of years ago. And when I heard the results of this study, it completely blew me away. And as much as it blew me away, I went, yep, that, that really rings true. And so the results of the study was that for young people, when they're in kindergarten, the study showed that 89% of kindergartners had a really high level of self-esteem, you know, a, a competent level of self-esteem and self-confidence about themselves. When they got to the fifth grade, just five years later, 20% had a competent level of self-esteem, you know, and you think about that, that's... 69% of their self-esteem had been knocked out of them in that five and a half year period. And then when they graduate from high school, it drops down to 5%. And then when they, if they go off and go to college, it drops to 2%. So we wonder why there are so many people, kids, all through adults, walking around in a haze trying to figure out life and they get out of school and they don't know what they want to do. Right. And we don't, and this is not even this, this whole millennial thing. It's really, it's development of how our school system really just pulls the uniqueness and the individuality out of us because we're all trying to fall, fall into that safety factor and find that tribe and everybody's, maturing and growing at about the same time. And when hormones start to pump 
you know, your brain is not working correctly. So everybody's learning. It's like the blind leading the blind trying to develop, you know, as, as you're looking at your peers and your friends going, well, what do you know that I don't know? And then there's one kid in that group that has a little bit of self-esteem or a little bit of sense of self. You said they've developed some identity, whether it be a, you know, a drug culture or a music culture. I was lucky at 14, 15 years old, I found theater. So it kept me out of all that. And it gave me a reason and a purpose after school. I had sports and theater or they could, they become a jock or they become a, a cheerleader or they become a brainiac or whatever it is. And kids are seeking to fit in. And you know, it's part of their, it's part of, it's just part of their natural, their own part evolution. Right. You know, there's a, um, piece that Osho talked about when he talked about ego. And one of the things that Osho did is he liked to take that concept of ego away from the individual. And he says, ego is a, ego is a construct of society. It's ego is for society. It's, it's how society survives. So having a big ego just means that you're afraid of not surviving by society's norms. And when you talk about being in high school or junior high, when the ego starts to go into hyperdevelopment, right? Everybody, all the, the kids you grew up with, and no one cared whether your skin was this color or that color, or your parents were this or that, and no one cared. Everybody just wanted to play. And then all of a sudden in junior high, it starts to fracture, right? These kids become jocks. And you talk about the one kid who might have self-esteem because these kids are jocks and these kids are music geeks and these kids are gamers and these kids are skateboarders and these kids are, you know, and it, and it, it starts to fracture out and everybody's looking to someone that has some semblance of self-confidence to emulate. And we don't even consider that that person's confidence might be that candy coating that is just a compensation for their own low self-esteem. So we've got, it's really a crapshoot, number one. Number two, developmentally, it's, it's really very rare that some kid in junior high or high school has actual self-confidence. Sometimes they just have an idea or a goal that they're working towards. And that's very attractive. I I have a list here of causes of low self-esteem that I want to read out that we can play off of for these, for parents and teachers and clinicians who are, you're always dealing with this. If you're dealing with a, a young person, a teenager, there's an esteem issue going on. The first one obviously is uninvolved or negligent parents. So there we're going to blame all the parents for everything that's ever happened ever. The second one is the negative peers, you know, just as though we're treated bad by parents and do something wrong, you make a mistake and suddenly you're outed from your crew and you've got to find a new crew. Obviously there's trauma. Uh, there's body image, which we talked about being a small fish in a big pond. And that certainly can happen when you move. Had an interesting one here that they have listed next as unrealistic goals. And I know that that was something that my own son dealt with, that if he wasn't able to accomplish these things that he had set up in his perfect pictures, that he was a failure and he was bad. And that comes with trying to figure out who you're trying to impress, whether it's yourself or others, if you're this internal perfectionist. But some of my son's goals were over the top, wanted to be a race car driver while he was still in high school and trying to build a race car while working at McDonald's. And he accomplished a lot of it, but he was always falling short. But you're supposed to at that age. They talk about previous bad choices. Somebody messes up, you do something, you send a nude picture of yourself in junior high, get spread around the school. Man, that can haunt you forever. And then, of course, negative thought patterns, which find me a kid who doesn't have something like that. And uh, I bet you we can find something else going on with that kid. Anything you would add to that list or anything that you would say to parents about that list to say, yeah, don't give too much to that one? Well, a lot of it is that perfectionist. There are those kids, like you were talking about with your son, where they have those unrealistic expectations of themselves. I, I, I find that some kids have a perfectionist thing. They beat themselves up. And, you know, you were talking about negative self-talk, which is they say right? The scientists say that we have between 80 and 90,000 thoughts every day. And about 90% of those is negative self-talk. And all you have to do is just ask yourself not to have any thoughts or say anything out loud to yourself that has any judgment in it and go (laughs) one day. You can't, you can't go 15 minutes without having negative self-talk. And, and I said, you know, and I, I feel like I have a pretty healthy sense of self and I still do it. I find myself beating myself up at times for certain things. It, it, it's less and less to less. But, you know, kids, it's that developmental thing. You know, like you mentioned earlier about, you know, pa- uh, kids moving away from being their parents 
I don't, I know I don't want to be like you. So I'm going to go find somebody else out there to be like, I think it comes down to what is our job is to raise kids to be independent, right? But in today's time and the way that we are as parents, we tend to micromanage everything that they're doing because there's so much more stimulus out there than when we were kids. I'm in my mid fifties and heck, I would be gone all day where there was no cell phone. My parents didn't know where I was, but they also just said, you know, go do, be, do what you need to do. And we were allowed to make mistakes because none of those mistakes ended up in social media or on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever kids, whatever social media kids are using Snapchat, the, you know, but now you screw up, you say something, you do something, you're held accountable for it. And there is a tremendous amount of pressure on teens and our young children today to be perfect. You know, that pressure also, that pressure also translates is that your profile has to look like you're always happier, that you're always on some adventure, that you're always doing something that's really good. I'm, I'll be the first one out there to say my Facebook profile, and I've got five Facebook pages. I do a lot of marketing. I market my company. I, I have two Aaron Huey Facebook pages, but I'll be the first to tell you that that is my Facebook page. That is not Aaron. That's the stuff that I'm going to show you. That's the stuff that I'm going to let you in and see. My personal struggles and everything, I'll talk about it if you ask. I'll let you have, but that public performance, that is the Aaron commercial. And that's what, that's the piece. One of, first of all, that's one of the things that really impressed me about your 101 days of healing after your divorce is how raw and real you were out there. And Skip, I know you, this is something we're putting out to the world. You certainly had a lot of process and a lot of thoughts off camera, but suddenly everybody's on camera. So yeah, if you screw up, my God, the whole world sees it. I watch those fail videos all the time. And you have to wonder how many of those people are suffering or how many people are still laughing the way they laughed in the video when they fell off the boat. So this public profile, this false personality is still feeding this societal ego. This is what you have to do and be to survive here. A lot of the things in this list that I read, you know, we were talking about unrealistic goals and poor body image and a peer group rejection. All three of those can be traced right back to what's going on on social media and media in general and on the internet and in cartoons. And tell me, Skip, find one cartoon for your daughter where the hero, the female hero, the heroine does not have a relationship with a boy. Find one. Uh, Right. And, And so how do you tell your daughter you're enough when everything that she sees is telling her that she's not? And that extends into womanhood. That every single commercial is telling every woman, your clothes aren't clean enough. The dishes aren't aren't clean enough. The, look, I'm the one who does the chores at home. You're a single dad. You're the one who does the chores at home. I don't give a damn. If my wife comes up to me and says, hey, don't throw this in the dryer. I don't throw it in the dryer. But if a commercial tells me it's like, well, you're not throwing it in the dryer well enough. I don't care. I can compartmentalize that. That's a That's either it's a skill or it's a gift of being a guy but I can tune that crap out. Except I've had an experience in the last week where I've gained a lot of weight and I exercise a lot. It's a big part of my life and I'm putting on weight and it ain't muscle. I'll tell you that it's all around my belly. I'm 48 years old and I got that belly thing going on and I'm a vegetarian and I exercise a lot and something's going on. So I go to the doctor and he's really working with me. He's, he's getting into it. What's going on with, you know, the food you intake and what kind of vegetarian on you? Do you ever, like, we're looking at everything, any food sensitivities. And somewhere along the way, he casually mentions that I'm shaped like an apple (laughs) and I can't get that out of my head. And it blows me away that here I am at 48 And someone who I'm looking up to and respecting and going to for help has made a completely innocent, off-topic comment. I can't shake it. And it landed. It It, really went in there. It did. Because your brain has been looking for something to make sense. And whether or not it's real or not, when he said that, you're looking for a piece of information that your brain can... You know, it's a scramble pattern, basically what it is. Yeah. You know, he was like, what are you doing? What is it? What? Oh, well, you're an apple. 
huh? What does that mean? <laughs> what? And it's there. That image is there. And now that body image is there. And like you said, it was innocent on his part. It's totally innocent. He's trying to help me. Yeah, this is what happens to us all the time. Of course. It's why the negative self-talk and the and and the uh, the negative body image happens to men and women all the time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It comes from peers. It comes from parents. It comes from spouses. It comes from children. Oh my God, you you crack up reading some of the most brutally honest things kids ever said to their parents and you crack up, but it lands. And I did a I did a show with Carmen Cool around nice. disordered eating and eating disorders. And I remember the day I said that thing to my daughter that it landed. It went in. It went past her defenses. It went past her. I don't care what people think about me. I love me for who I am. And I said something and it it countered that and it affected her. And, you know, that it hurts. It hurt her and it hurt me that I hurt her. And these things can still hurt. Now, the difference is, is that being 48 years old and doing the work that I do, this thing has landed. This Apple comment has hit home. And what I haven't done is overcompensated for the pain that that caused. What I haven't done is acted on triggers. What I haven't done is acted out. I have not doubled my time at the gym and then suddenly try to starve myself and then go find a new diet. I'm very aware that I'm uncomfortable and I'm sitting through that discomfort. I'm being with that concept and I'm, I'm doing a process where I look at that apple and I, and I, then I change it to the shape of my body and I see that the bottom of the apple where it scoops under and I tighten the belt and I'm going with it. I'm not resisting it. I'm not trying to push it out and I'm, I'm putting it out there because I don't want this to eat me alive because I've been eaten alive in the past by low self-esteem. So how do we teach kids to do this? How do we tell a kid when they come home and they're sobbing in our arms and we've noticed that suddenly their grades have gone down or they're they're having they're being uh, a promiscuous or they they want to they start dropping out of school or suddenly they've been shoplifting or they're trying drugs or they're cutting or their eating habits are are starting to show signs of hyper control or or limitation and withholding and stuff like that and we're like uh oh they got a low self esteem problem how do we sit with them in this moment how do we how do we teach a child? You got to go through this. And there's only one way it's through. Now, if you do it unconsciously, it's going to F up your life. So we're going to do it consciously. So what do we do? Well, so I have three children. I have a, my son is 24, my oldest. And then I have a 12 year old daughter and I have an eight year old son. He just turned eight a few days ago. And one of the things I've noticed with my youngest two is from what I learned about being a dad with a different mom for my first one, that what seems to work is that kids understand from their parents that first and foremost, that there's nothing that they could ever do that would get them to stop having me love them. Right. And I, you know, and I talked to my son and he goes, no, dad, I know you love me. And you know, and I told him all the time, but I've made an appointment with my youngest two to every day I go, Oh, you know what? I forgot something. And they go, what is it, dad? said, I forgot to tell you how much I love you today. And they just get this big grin on their face. And now it's become this, this little game. And I know this sounds so simple and, you know, and it is true. I've said to them, there is nothing that you could ever do that would make me stop loving you. I tell them almost every single day how much I love them and that they couldn't do anything. And to let them know that whatever they do, mistakes and all, warts and all, everything, they're going to be loved. And they're always going to have my support. You know, my oldest boy was in college and he went through college and he's kind of was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And he kind of went from this to this to this. And what he was really passionate about was music. And he's a self-taught guitar player, an amazing guitar player. And when he got out of school, I thought he was really talented. And having been in the industry, you know, I did Broadway and musicals and was around a lot of musicians. I was one of those dads that said, hey, let's figure out how we can get you into having a music career. Why don't you really try to, to, you know, to do this? And all my friends went, are you crazy? And I was like, look, I was an artist growing up and I longed for my father's support. I didn't have it when I was a teenager, but I got it at one point. I earned his trust and respect. Once I started, you know, he saw that I was passionate about it and I was going to do it no matter what. And I was on a mission. I thought, I want to support him for that. Now, he ended up choosing not to do that. 
but I made that a possibility for him. And I've given him the ultimate range of what do you want to do? What make, what brings you joy? And I've tried to connect with him. So when I see kids that are disconnected, when I see kids that are disconnected and I work with a lot of teenagers and I do it over like Skype or on, on zoom. And I oftentimes work with kids that have drug problems. And what I will do is I, I will say, how do you feel about yourself? And they inevitably, you know, if every once in a while you'll find a kid that has that hardened core that goes, yeah, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. But for the most part, they say I'm crap. I'm nothing. My life doesn't matter. I don't know why I'm here. And I'm like, look, I think that the reason that we start to do drugs and the reason we start to act out is because we know that there's some greatness inside of us and we don't know how to access it. And I said, the system is built to strip you of your uniqueness, your opinion, and your strength. The system that we live in is all built around that, especially the traditional school system. There are some alternative schools that are phenomenal and that are really trying to work to build self-esteem. But for the most part, the system strips you of your uniqueness. You need to fall into that pattern. So what I tell them is I like, look, I think you're actually a hero. And I think that you are so much more. And because of that, and you know it, you've numbed out because it's too difficult to put that fight up every day so that you can be you. And I said, so I'm going to hold this space for how freaking cool you are and how amazing of a being you are that you don't see in yourself yet until you see that. Right. One of the parenting techniques that we teach parents that I utilize with both of my kids is you preserve self-concept no matter what you're doing. And that's, you know, you hinted towards that with the, no matter what you could do, I will always love you. I may be sad. I may be mad, but I will love. Mm. But there's an and on top of that, there is a concept called specific praise. One of the mistakes that has been made in a generation of parenting, my generation's parenting skills, is heaping praise, trophies for last place, those types of things. And it's cheapened praise and it's cheapened first place. And kids know it and parents know it. Um, participation ribbons were enough. And, and some could argue um, they were even too much because I remember the days getting into the car after a hockey game and, you know, I was the goalie and my, I would say to my dad, how come they got all these goals on me? And my dad would say, cause they're better. <laughs> and there was discomfort right. in that, but that, that taught me how to be uncomfortable. And it also gave me an option. I could stay the same that I was and other people would be better or I could shoot to get better. So there's got to be a concept uh, moving forward to help preserve to preserve self-concept or preserve a concept in our children by giving specific praise. My daughter wrote a lot of poetry. And instead of saying, wow, this poem is so good, I would pick that line that made me go, holy crap, how did she come up with that? That is incredible imagery. And I would say this right. line right here, daughter, this this one really, this one turned my stomach. This one opened my eyes. This, this the way you put these words together made me cry. Let's talk about this line. Or when she would drew, draw a picture, I would find a piece of the picture that really stood out. Not the, what a beautiful picture. It doesn't mean anything. That's ambiguous. And so we can find those things, those specific things in our kids that we can say, yeah, I know, I know math is tough on you, but what I love about you has nothing to do with math. It has to do with the fact that you see people, you, you see past their struggles and you see past their performances and you really get to see people. And I've always admired that about you. Not just, oh, you're awesome. Pick it up, you know, buck up camper, keep going buckaroo. It doesn't work. What works is saying, here's this thing that I've noticed about you that I can't shake, and I love you for it. It's, it's so amazing. I had, a, I had a science teacher. Man, I had studied for this science test and studied and studied, got a D minus. I stood up in front of Jerry Hunter, Skyline High School, stood up in front of Jerry Hunter's desk, and I, was, I said, I really did try. I really did try to study for this one. And he said, just focus on the things you're good at. That's what we all do as adults. Don't let them try to tell you different. Man, oh man, was that forgiveness of failure? Was that, was that a way of this teacher saying, yeah, but there are things that you are so good at. Focus there. And it was awesome. I, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget him. Well, 
I heard the phrase uh, a while back that said, you know, we've all heard practice makes perfect. And I heard somebody say, no, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Right. You know, so, you know, there's always room for improvement. So, you know, and I have a leadership academy where I, I teach leadership in organizations, companies in, in you know, different or, different ways. And one of the things we really talk about is as leaders, this old command and control style, again, it also equates to parenting. The command and control style is an old, outdated model, you know, and a lot of people still parent that way because their parent, again, family of origin patterns is how I was parented. That's how my dad was parented, my mom, whatever, which is we need to look at being mentors and coaches and find, like you said, that specific praise that we can build up these kids' self-esteem because the system rips them of it, right? So it's, we have to really look at how can I every day add to this children's ability to see the greatness in themselves. And again, not just the blah, blah stuff, but something specific. Riley had applied to the National Honor Society uh, in her school. And she goes to this charter school and we were really lucky to get her into it's a it's a, a public school out here in Boulder County, uh, and she didn't get in, and I was afraid, I was concerned that she was going to be, because she succeeds at almost everything she tries because she works hard at it, and uh, she said, hey, dad, and because my my ex wife and I are you know don't live in the same house, mom told me that I didn't get into the National Honor Society, and I said, well, sweetheart, how do you feel about that? She goes, well, I'm okay. And I went, you're okay about it? I said, you really wanted to get in? She said, yeah, but I know why I didn't get in. And I said, okay, why? And she said, well, last week I got really busy and I forgot two assignments. So when they went to look at my grades, my grades were okay, but I had a couple of missing assignments and they told me it was scholastics. So I'm just going to work on it and, and I'll get it next semester. And to me, my heart swelled up. Because resilience, the word resilience is one of the best tools that we can teach our kids. And again, you can kind of harden that or you can support that. But how do we real? that's the question. How do we teach our children how to be resilient in the face of setbacks? You know, we got setbacks all the time, but kids nowadays, like you said, everything has to be, you know, perfect. But I literally gave her a hug and I said, you know what I'm most proud of? I said, the fact that you have this attitude about you'll get it next time. So what are you going to do? She already had a plan. Well, I'm going to make sure that this, that, and the other thing, and I'm going to go to the, the person who's in charge of the uh, National Honor Society and find out specifically what it was about my grades. And, and she had a whole plan. And I, I just, I almost, I almost broke out into tears because I'm like, oh my God, we're, I'm being able to support her and I'm watching her be resilient at 12 years old. And instead of shrinking, she's growing. And she's getting bigger right in front of my eyes. And, and, you know, I just was so thrilled. So for parents that are out there struggling, you know, it really is how do we, how do we build resilience? Because resilience is a muscle. I have a friend of mine who's written this book called Act Resilient. And she took 4,000 active troops that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that were completely shut down in the system of the military. And she, she was stationed in uh, Hawaii. And she put them through a series of improvisation exercises to allow them to express themselves emotionally. And it would open them up to have more freedom to be able to feel. So that was teaching them resilience. And she said she could tell right away whether somebody was going to be able to heal quickly or not. And so how do we as parents build resilience. There are, and I'm, I'm listening to you talk about resilience and there, there are four things that you and I have mentioned in here that are direct tools for parents who are working with their teens or children who have low self-esteem. I want to make sure we list them because we've talked about them at length, but we haven't called them out like as a Step one, step two, step three, step four process. And, and so I want to do that. Number one is preserving self-concept. The idea that no matter what's going on, 
they're them and they're okay and they are loved, lovable, and loving. Number two is specific praise. Being really specific about praise, not just heaping praise on like it's going to help. It doesn't. It's sugar coating and too much sugar doesn't work. In fact, it makes the body unhealthy. So being specific, finding that thing that really does light you up about your child and talk to them about that. Um, number three, teaching healthy resiliency. Um, resiliency is amazing. And the body is tremendously resilient. Ask anybody who has survived a, tr a traumatic childhood or a traumatic, um, uh, you know, military service or, you know, a, a, a traumatic attack at some point, and they're still going like the, the, the brain and the body is designed for resiliency. And what we don't teach kids is emotional resiliency. And I really think that the only way to teach emotional resiliency is that parents have to model it. And that's the fourth one is modeling that positive self-talk. You'd really, what you said, 90% of what we say to ourselves in a day is negative self-talk. Okay. Okay. So let's say that's true. I know you skip, you know me. I've got journals in front of me right here at my desk filled with my positive affirmations. Every day at the gym, I listen to a tape of or a tape there. That's how old I am. I listen to yeah. uh, uh, an iPod filled with heavy metal music with my own iPod. Voice. You got an iPod? I've got an iPod. <laughs> I've, I, I listen to an iPod, which filled with heavy metal music with my own voice superimposed over each song with positive self-talk an hour of it. That's how I get through my time at the gym is I, I cheer myself on. I coach myself forward. I remind myself of what I'm here to do in this world. And so if even with someone like me, who's going, and I'm shaped like an apple, I've got to, I've got to model something different for my kids. I've got to model something different for the people I work with. Yep. You know, right. What I've got right now is I've got something that's triggered me and it's awoken an old, old dragon, but I see it. I see it coming. I got this one because I got support and I'm not, I'm not hiding in the shadows. I'm calling in my troops saying, Hey, guess what? Everybody, <laughs> someone told me I'm shaped like an apple and it's messing with me. And people would be like, yeah, yeah. Welcome to being 48 years old. And you know, this doctor is, and he was innocent and, I'll get through this, but that's what I got to model. That's the modeling positive self-talk is despite my apple shape, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a good man and I do good work in this world that I got to model for my kids so that when they hit the skids on something like that, there's still that concept. There's still the specifics they can bring up about themselves and they can be resilient because they know how to talk to themselves about life. Those are four steps when you're dealing with your kid. Those are easy to do. Well, I'll accept modeling positive self-talk. If there's one that's going to be hard, it's going to be what we're teaching our kids because a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, and a lot of clinicians, despite their training, are still very caught up in their own past and their own pain and their own problems. So this is where we get past that as parents. Absolutely. And it's, and it's difficult because oftentimes the reason, not, not that parents are parents, but that teachers and clinicians are doing what they're doing is, hey, they had their own pain when they were younger and they started to heal it. And then they thought, hey, I might be able to help others. I mean, that's why I got into the personal growth realm was I had a rough childhood. You know, I had some rejections, some abandonment, some abuse. And I started working on at a very young age trying to figure out why my emotions were locked up. So when I got freed and I started, you know, being able to, to live my life in joy, I was like, I want to, I want to share this with others. It's, you know, it, it's work. It's, you know, that's why they call it personal growth work. You know, it's not just being out in la la land and thinking that it's not going to be difficult because it is. And living a conscious life and a mindful life is a choice. And it's a choice that you have to make every single day. And being the parent that you want to be can be a little difficult. And it's a choice that you have to remind yourself, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this for the family, you know, and to be able to do that. And, and the best thing that we can do is be a good model. Because if you have younger kids that are under the age of 13, and that's when the brainwave speed goes to full on adult brainwave speed and into, uh, you know, self-consciousness there's still a lot of room to help your younger children uh, have that model as you as their parents so that they can follow something that's healthy. Uh, because until we're 13, 
everything that we hear, see, smell, touch, taste, watch, all goes into that brain, which is like a hard drive of a computer, and it stays there. So if there's trauma, it's there until you do the work to let go of it. And again, we talked about this earlier. Some personality types can shrug it off and go, yep, that's okay. It's not, I'm not going to let it bother me. And other personality types and the way that they're, they're hardwired, it affects them greatly. And you can have two kids that can have the same experience from the same family and have two totally different emotional and psychological experiences of what that is and how it affects them. So, you know, as you said, being able to be uh, mindful and be present to how you're communicating with your kids, how much you're telling them uh, about how they're, you know, they can be confident and all that, because, you know, you were mentioning those other things. I think, you know, our four fundamental psychological needs fall into one, belonging, connecting, and love. The more that we can belong to a group, a tribe, a, a clan, we can connect with other people. We have connection and that brings out compassion through love. Then the second one is that the balance that we start to find with power, significance, and competence. How good am I at something? How, what's, it, 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 do I matter? Does my existence matter? And do I have a presence and, and have strength over what I'm feeling and doing? And can I influence others? Do I have an influence of others? The third one is really embracing freedom and autonomy, which is an important part of kids being able to grow up. And as I said, there's helicopter parents, there's parents that are trying to micromanage their kids' lives. When I was a kid, we didn't have play dates. We just went out and played. Now every kid has to have a controlled play date and it's all structured. And then the last one is fun and learning. I early on became a lifetime learner and I spend to this day, and I'm 56, I spend time every day learning a little something so that I'm keeping up and I'm stimulating myself as far as the new information that's come out. And I also try to have fun. So those four things are what are psychological needs that need to be met. And you as an adult have them and the kids have that too. And if they're missing something, they're going to act out. So we can teach kids in the midst of all that how to be resilient and how to face setback. Hey, okay, you didn't. You know, I was watching This Is Us the other day, and anybody that's seen that show, I, I watch it and, you know, and I sit and watch it with my two young children, and we discuss the emotional content of what's going on. And they're asking me, hey, Dad, why are you crying during that? And it's like, well, it's triggering up some old memories for me. But they're on the, on the show, the, the woman who's a little heavy set was singing for an audition. And it really made me think about this because of having auditioned so many times. And she got up and sang, and the person cut her off in the middle of the song, said, thank you, that's good, we, we don't need to see anymore. And she started to walk out the door. She came back and just gave the guy hell because she was like, oh, this is because of the way I look and the way because I'm a little overweight and this, that, and the other thing. And was giving the guy hell about the fact that he dismissed her. And he turned and said to the backup singer in the group, hey, sweetheart, step forward, sing me eight bars of something. And this woman started to sing and she was absolutely incredible. And he looked at her and said, you know what? That's our backup singer. You're just don't, you just don't have the talent. You're not prepared. It's not about how you look. It's about your talent. And she looked at him and there was a, there was a, a knowingness. She kind of smiled and said, okay, thank you. And then afterwards she was like, you know what? It was because I wasn't prepared. That I can do something about. That I can practice. That I can go back. I can improve my craft. You know, and, and it was like a motivator for her. And, you know, and I, I just thought that was a perfect example of having self-resilience, of being able to hear that. And, you know, I, I felt that same feeling as a performer many times, being comparing myself. Again, that's another thing that it can be the kiss of death, you know, for, for teenagers when you start comparing yourself to other, other kids or other people. Um, so this is all things that, you know, was important to think about, but really looking at it as a parent is how can we build resilience? Like you said, tell your kids you love them, teach them to, to face adversity 
and move through it and give them specific praise on that. Let them know that you're a fan and you're there for them. And knowing that they are going to pull away at a certain age. It's part of the biological process and the evolutionary process of being able to be on their own. And as they pull away, you support them and say, what do you need? And you still stay in contact and you still stay, you know, so that they know that you're, you're watching and you care. You don't just abdicate everything, but you know, yeah, I I know, you know, this Aaron, I I mean, I'm just, there's a, there's a place, there's a place in our child's development where we stop protecting them and we have to start preparing them. And that is done through how we model being prepared for the world. Skip with this. Um, we're going to we're gonna call this show to an end. There are many more conversations that you and I are going to have. I'll have you back on again. These are great. Parents, the, the self-esteem thing, this, this begins early. It begins in us. I'm not going to say mom's to blame. We're going to say we all have work to do. So let's get to it. Let's build resiliency. Let's, let's create specific praise. Let's model positive self-talk and let's preserve our own self-concepts. Moms and dads, as what I'm going to say, I say it every time. It's the mantra. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third. And in that way, we do our best work for our kids. I want to thank Emily, who edits, gets in there and and goes through every single show with a fine tooth comb and makes them great. And our boss goddess, Kristen, I want to thank Skip Lackey, my guest once uh, and will be again. Skip, how can people get in touch with you to uh, involve themselves? and more of your work. They can go to skiplackey.com, L-A-C-K-E-Y, skiplackey.com. If I can be of any help, please reach out to me or I'm also on Facebook. Friend me on Facebook. I'd love to have you see what I post and be a part of that social network circle too. And and thanks, Eric, for having me on again. I love our dialogues. You know, I think we're equally as passionate about doing the work that we do for ourselves and others. And I love you, man. I think you are a beautiful beautiful, huge soul that I'm so glad is out there and and has the voice that you do. Thank you so much for the work that you and Christine do. Uh, Thank you, Skip. I appreciate that. I love you back. I've always admired you all the way from your clown days and beyond. So thanks for saying that. Folks, we'll talk to you again. This is Aaron Huey, and this has been Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.